Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 302, interview with Leslie Bloom about her book, Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed it to the world. Leslie M. M. Bloom is an award-winning journalist, historian, and New York Times bestselling author. Her work has appeared in Vanity Fair, The New York Times, National Geographic, The Wall Street Journal, and The Paris Review Daily, among other publications. Some of her books include Everybody Behaves Badly, It Happened Here, and Let's Bring Back. Today, we will cover the Truman Administration's attempt to cover up the true extent and nature of the two atomic bombs. And Leslie, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much for for having me on and for picking Fallout as a subject. Absolutely. Now, before we get into your book, I just have to say this, and we kind of covered this a little bit in the emails back and forth a couple of weeks ago, but I was... I, I bought your audiobook. I appreciate the publisher sending me a copy, but I love audiobooks. I was listening to the audiobook on my front porch, and I'm just, it's a very pleasant view. It's a, it's a beautiful night. And I'm listening to the introduction. And after that introduction ended, I literally hit pause, and I had to stop listening to the book for the next two days. I, there was so much information in that introduction. And to be honest with you, what the way you presented it made my blood freeze about, you know, any future war that we might have. And so I think it's important to point out um, this book, this story is a clear demonstration that all governments, even our own government in Washington, has to be watched closely. They have to be held accountable because it's in their very nature to look out for themselves, to hold on to power more than they have to try to serve the American people. So if you could give us an idea, how did this incredible, very detailed, but emotionally powerful introduction of your book come about? And I just have to ask, what did you feel as you were putting those words together? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm you know, both glad and sorry that, <laughs> that it affected you that way. Right. Cause it sounds like it was fairly traumatic. Um, you know, the introduction, I, I always had a really complicated relationship with introductions for my nonfiction books. And I, I'll start with one because, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll start my entire manuscript writing an introduction because it helps me really clarify what the entire trajectory of the book is going to look like. And, right. you know, it's always a very careful dance, you know, to, to figure out how much do you put in, how much do you reveal in the introduction and how much do you tease out in it? And also another, you know, really big question for me and for my editor, who is my extremely close editorial confidant, is how much contemporary information, mm. contextualizing contemporary information do you put into it? Because, you know, while that it definitely makes historical material relatable to readers when the book comes out, you know, the idea also is that the book has a long shelf life and remains relevant for a long time, as Hershey's Hiroshima itself has. And so, you know, my, my book is about, you know, how how the U S government tried to tell the story of the atomic bombs in, in 1945, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, mm-hmm. how they covered up the, the, the true radioactive aftermath and its effect on humans and how one reporter got in on the ground almost a year later and was able to reveal the truth about nuclear weapons to, to a worldwide readership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was incredibly important to me that I bring his work back you know, to, to a modern readership, but also that people would read my own book about him and spread, you know, his story 
10 or 15 or 20 years from now. And so, right. for instance, while I was incredibly tempted to put in a lot of stuff about about you know our president, our current president, Donald Trump, you know, mm-hmm. and his totally cavalier approach to nuclear matters, you know, threatening to, you know, eviscerate Afghanistan, threatening to eviscerate North Korea, threatening to toss a nuclear weapon into a hurricane to try to dissipate it. I mean, it's like the lack of comprehension is so total. And I think, you know, including information like that would have been um, really driven home the point of the, the perilousness of our landscape right now. But again, it was a really excruciating writing and rewriting and rewriting process as we tried to to get to the right the right balance of um timely and timeless mm-hmm. and um you know ultimately you know this this john hersey's work which i document in my book and fallout my book are a warning to the world and it's a warning that we have forgotten uh, somewhat unfathomably. I mean, I can't believe that this is it's it's <laughs> right. the most perilous threat, but it has been largely forgotten right now. It's not even part of you know the debate for tomorrow night. It's not even a debate topic. Um, and it's the most hair trigger and irreversible existential global threat. and the atom- the bulletin for the atomic scientists has deemed this the most perilous nuclear landscape ever right. uh, more than at any point during the depths of the Cold War. And so it felt, important to me to drive home to modern readers where we are right now and why this matters. And the fact is, is that if we had a World War III today and it was a nuclear World War III, as Albert Einstein said, I don't know exactly how World War III will be fought, but I can tell you if nuclear weapons are involved, World War IV will be fought with rocks. Wow. Yes, that was the moment. I just I just had to stop for a second. And and he's absolutely right, because we now I think you obviously say this in your book, we now have the ability to destroy our entire planet. I mean, it's just we can do it now if we're not careful. If I could just oh, many times, yeah. many times over. Yes, many absolutely. times over. I mean, our, and our arsenal isn't even peak right now. I mean, we have right. um, you know, glo- global arsenal is about thirteen thousand five hundred warheads. I mean, it was three times that at the height of the Cold War, but that's still enough to to eviscerate you know, life on Earth many t- many times over. Right. If I could just for a second before we go on to the next question, because you bring up obviously the core of your book, and it, and it kind of goes or I guess a good example of it goes like this. If you grab the average American now who did not ever read a history book that they weren't forced to, they never took a history course that they weren't required to graduate high school, whatever. But if you were asked them about nuclear or atomic bombs, they could tell you this one fact. They could go, oh, it's not just a bomb. It's really nasty. And there's some stuff afterwards, radiation, whatever they call it, and it's still around and it's dangerous. To us, that's common sense, but it didn't have to be common sense, like you were saying earlier, because of what the government was trying to cover up after using these two bombs. It's John Hersey, his book, and people like that, that made that fact the common sense that it is today. Well, yeah, I mean, largely we know what what it's like to be on the receiving end of nuclear attack because John Hersey showed us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this extremely... In this, in this, this document that was, you know, told from the point of view of six blast survivors who who experienced and witnessed nuclear attack, and I mean, it's an excruciating, awful detail. Right. Um, one of the things about his work is that it's it's so visceral, but people also really place themselves in the shoes of these Hiroshima blast survivors, and you know, even though they're they're experiencing it through residents of Hiroshima, they're they're imagining this is could be New York or this could be Detroit because that that's that's accurate. It could right. be any place. There's no place on the globe that's from this this threat and that was that was true within a year of 1945 i mean you could load nukes onto onto uh missiles by you know very quickly mm-hmm. after the first after the, the bombings of hiroshima and nagasaki and you know look it, because of the occupation of japan you know the japanese weren't able to tell the world in their own words what it had been like to be on the receiving end of nuclear warfare it was john hersey who got in, you know, and, and told the world in 1946 and painted this very vivid picture of, you know, what was at stake in terms of holding our leadership to account and and really making the global audience uh, fully aware of the implications of having moved into the atomic age and yeah. how how completely dangerous, you know, global warfare would be in the future now that nuclear weapons were a fact. 
Okay, so we're going to get into that in a second, but but I do have to ask one other question because this is one of my favorite questions because you always wonder how these things come about, but how did this story come to you or you come to it? And then how did the book come about itself? Well, I mean, the story found me as much as I found it. And, <laughs> you know, I knew that, which was, which is amazing how that works. I mean, and, and now, you know, that I'm, I'm, you know, launching this project and thinking about what I want to do next, you know, there's always that horror of, oh my God, there's the abyss. Right. And then you remember that, you know, eventually, you know, a topic will, will find you. You just have to know generally what the broad strokes are that you're looking for. Mm. And in the case of, of Fallout, you know, I, I, my broad strokes were that I knew I wanted to do a powerful historical newsroom story that really drove home for readers the the deadly importance of an independent press, um, right. largely because of the climate in which we find ourselves right now for the last four and a half, five years. Our independent press has been attacked by our own government, by our own president, a journalist designated enemies of the people. You know, mm. I've been horrified, disgusted you know, every word in, in that sort of general range by this turn of events. And so it just felt really important in this moment to remind Americans and a global audience, really, you know, what was at stake with, with, um, with really protecting our fourth estate. Right. And so, you know, I was, I was reading because I have a, an affinity, I have an academic affinity for World War II. I'm well-versed in it, but mostly the European theater. I was just tearing through mm-hmm. testimonies, you know, World War II newsroom testimonies, trying to find my story and everything had been done, you know, Murrow, you know, Gellhorn, Hemingway. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it's all been done to death and they're, they're relentlessly fascinating, but it needed, and nothing was fitting the bill of, you know, also what's this Watergate level you know, a, a, a piece of reporting that's going to mm-hmm. tell the story. My husband, who's also a newsman, and I were at dinner one night, and he just said casually to me, you know, you know, I wonder how Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, were covered. And for us, it was it was really a logistical question because, you know, we're trained as journalists, and everybody knows, you know, in our world, you know, whoever controls the ground controls the story. So it was a logistical question. How on earth, you know, would people have gotten into, you know, nuke fallout zones? 1945 in a heavily occupied country and get the story out. And I didn't really know a lot about Hersey, but then, you know, that, that was like a, it was like a Hitchcock pull zoom moment for me where I was like, Oh, oh, that's very interesting. Um, and so I, I researched research and I found that not a lot had been written on it and nothing, you know, when I really came, when I came across Hersey's story and how important it had been, nobody had documented how we got the story. Nobody had really documented the significance of how it, it revealed the, the, the true aftermath in Hiroshima and the bomb's effects on, on humans. But it also, you know, that his testimony, his testimony, his, his article turned book really revealed the extent to which the U S government had significantly covered up these details from its public and from the world at large. And Mm -hmm. in my line of business, when you find a story like that, that hasn't been told, you leap on that story. Right. Um, And (laughs) I mean, it's like, you know, lying on me. You're like, okay, that's it. so that, that that's how that's how that came about. Okay, so so let's let's jump into the meat, as it were. So the the United States drops the two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which may or may not have ended the war. That's a whole nother story, but that's not for us to uh, to go into right now. But concerning your book, um, so and I love this part of your book because it says that basically the two atomic bombs were somehow the most powerful explosions in the history of humankind, and yet. Supposedly, according to our government, no, there's no lingering effects. Everything is fine. So we're going to go into the kind of the cloak and dagger in just a moment. But if you can give us an idea of what the official line is concerning these two bombs from the Truman administration on down, uh, General Leslie uh, Leslie Groves, uh, if you can give us an idea of what the American people were being told at the time, because you you have to know, you have to realize the American people are just happy the war is over, but there's more to it than that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's funny because Hiroshima, the story of the atomic bombs have this strange distinction of mm-hmm. being the most covered story right. of the war, and but also the most covered up. And, mm-hmm. you know, when when the when Harry Truman announced that 
they, that an atomic bomb had been used on Hiroshima. First of all, nobody knew what an atomic bomb was. I mean, there were tens of thousands of employees, employees working on the bombs, you know, for the Manhattan Project who had no idea what they were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, even the, you know the team of pilots who was going to you know do the bombing missions, a, a lot, if not most of them, had no idea what their mission was going to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it cloaked in such extreme secrecy. So you know, the the announcement comes out: we just used an atomic bomb on our enemy. What's an atomic bomb? Oh, okay. This is what what it is. This is what Truman says. He says it's a it's a mega weapon. Um, it draws its 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 power from the, the you know the sun. I mean, there's a lot of pseudo biblical language that's used to describe uh-huh. it, just to drive home the enormity of the of the weapon. But here's the catch. You know, it's immediately you know sort of just you know, described as a conventional mega weapon, even mm-hmm. though it's, it's, you know, clearly a, a different beast entirely. It was, you know, billed even in, you know, a, a huge headline in the New York times as being equal to 20,000 tons of TNT. Mm-hmm. And so people were immediately encouraged to think about, about it as a, again, a conventional weapon. There's another piece of arsenal, which is how Harry Truman would put it, would mm-hmm. put it later. I'm sorry. It was a, a, another piece of artillery. Um, and, so then, you, it, it, we're looking at pictures, or you know, audiences are, and, and readers are seeing pictures coming out of Japan after, after Hiroshima and then Nagasaki of the mushroom clouds, and eventually landscape devastation pictures are released. And these seem to tell the story of the destruction, but they don't tell the story of the distinctive destruction, namely that these are the bombs that continue to kill long after detonation. And what you're not seeing in, in, in initial press reports or in military releases, you know, approved military material coming out, are pictures of the victims or any description of what is happening to people who um, you know, survived the blast. I mean, the the the, the deaths, the radiation poisoning um, was was absolutely horrific, and it would take. Um, you know, there were some initial press reports, which, which we can get to or not. You know, later in our conversation, that mm-hmm. um, indicated that there was something sinister and strange um, happening to blast survivors. There was some terrible affliction, but after those initial reports. It goes quiet, and the government has the upper upper hand in terms of controlling, really making controlling the story and making Hiroshima and Nagasaki and that, the true aftermath into restricted topics. And also, President Truman wasn't the only person, obviously, to depict you know mm-hmm. this this bomb in conventional terms. And you know, Leslie Groves, who was the head of the Manhattan Project, you know, took a, an immediate and personal role in. Um, in downplaying the these after effects, um, you know, right. and you know, look, there was great concern in the states, uh, you know, for the, within the government and the military, you know, already during the firebombings of Tokyo, that you know, the U.S. was was it was going to win the war, and it was a bitterly won military victory, but you know, at what cost? And so Henry Stimson, Henry Stimson, who was the Secretary of War, had worried after after Tokyo's firebombing, are we going to get the the reputation for outdoing Hitler in atrocities. Wow. So, you know, at, at the time, you know, in the immediate aftermath of Hiroshima, Leslie Groves immediately dispatches um, you know, a team to inspect Hiroshima to find out, you know, well, actually, let's find out, you know, because they, they, they didn't really understand the full ramifications and effects of the weapon that they had created and detonated over this, you know, population, largely civilian, of 300,000 people. So he sent, on one hand, he sends a team mm-hmm. to quietly find out, you know, what, what in hell is going on? What does this bomb do to humans? You know, in the meantime, there are tens of thousands of, of, of allied troops that are converging on uh, on Japan for occupation, including the atomic cities. So, he, you know, they're scrambling to find out what's what. In the meantime, he personally co-hosts a, a press junket with Oppenheimer mm-hmm. uh, in uh, at the site of the the, the the testing of the first bomb, which had taken place on July 16th of 1945 in New Mexico, mm-hmm. and you know he's you know for paddling like hell, you know to to make the make the case that there's actually no such thing as lingering radiation. You could live in Hiroshima forever. Just look at how safe it was in New Mexico where they were standing. Meanwhile, as he and the junket of reporters are standing there in, you know, protective booties and, you know, the irony being that that was actually a far more, you know, radioactively polluted site than either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Later that fall, he's hauled in front of Congress um, Mm. to talk about the weapons. And, you know, by then he has started conceding, you know, that, 
that there is such a thing as radiation poisoning, especially, you know, for people who have uh, taken in a lot of radiation at the moment of the blast, but he's still downplaying it. And he even says just somewhat unimaginably during this hearing that actually, you know, even if there is such thing as radiation poisoning, it's actually, quote, a very pleasant way to die, end quote. So you can see... um, you can see the 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 efforts that were being made to downplay, spin, and cover up the true nature of the bombs that they had created and just detonated. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, They've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. And you you can clearly see Groves' motivation because his name will forever be attached to the bomb. So if it goes down in history as a bad thing, obviously he will too. So, I mean, that's completely selfish of him, but, but that's his job at the same time. So I get that. So you have the official American line from Washington. And if you just think of it as a really, just a really big conventional bomb and you see pictures of bombed out buildings, they kind of go together. You're right. The, the, the details are not being released to the people. Um, and now you've got General MacArthur, who is literally the American Caesar in Japan. He controls everything. His scap controls everything, which brings us to someone like John Hersey, who has an idea of what he wants to do. He needs to get there and get some details to tell a story, but he's got to get through MacArthur and all the people that work for him. So if you could tell us a little bit about John, uh, introduce him to us and how he gets to, to Japan, I think that might be a good way to get to the next part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. So John Hersey in 1945, when the bombs were were detonated, Mm -hmm. he's he's already he's young. He's in his early 30s, but he's already quite renowned. And he was a a war correspondent for Time magazine in life since 1939. He'd been in practically every theater around the world. Um, And he was also a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, war novelist for his 1944 novel, Bell for Adano. Um, he was on top of all of that. He was a commended war hero. He had helped evacuate wounded Marines in a battle between the Japanese and the Americans in the Solomon Islands. Um, okay, to make things even worse, he's movie star handsome. He's yes. married to you know a Southern heiress. They have a beautiful family. They live in Manhattan's Park Avenue. I mean, he has the most charmed life on the right. planet. Not that he doesn't work hard for it, but sure. you know, he's also. You know he's he's um, he's quite well known and famous too. I mean he's in Winchell's column and he gets invited to the White House. I mean it's quite a, a, a hard life because he's obviously in 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 combat zones and 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 war zones. But he's you know, when he's not he's he's living quite a glamorous literary war journalist life. Sure. Um, so he you know Hersey. He had left Time Inc. when the bomb went off over Hiroshima, and he first heard about it over, you know, Truman's over the radio, Truman's radio address. And he was in New York, and something really disturbed. I mean, he was rattled as hell by Mm. by the announcement because, you know, on the one hand, he had been in the Pacific Theater. He had seen cover. I mean, he had covered the battles between the Japanese and the Americans, and he witnessed firsthand what he called the tenacity of the Japanese. Uh, military. And he, like many other Americans, believed that they were facing a situation in which the Japanese really would fight 
you know, as, again, as they put it, savagely to to the last man to defend mm-hmm. their their homeland from invasion, um, which was you know, military plans were drawn up for that. You know, it, it, it was slated to take place um, in uh, in the fall of 1945 if the bombs hadn't been ready for for military use by then. Right. So you know, Hersey, on the one hand, he thinks, look, you know, this this is horrific and you know one bomb destroying an entire city you know this portends terrible things for the future of humanity but at the same time he also admits later that he was he was relieved because he did feel that it would speed the end of the war so he took mm-hmm. solace in that right. three days later he hears you know along with the rest of the world that nagasaki has been bombed by a, you know a plutonium bomb and he's horrified i mean he, he thinks you know it's akin to a war crime you know, we had given them a warning with Hiroshima, just give the Japanese time to, you know, process what had yeah. happened to them and surrender. He just felt like it was completely egregious. This is, you know, his 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 point of view, not mine. Um, I'm just, you know, just to clarify that this is entirely his his right. outlook at the in that moment. So he knows at that point, you know, that he wants to, he's going to write about the bombs in some capacity. He just doesn't know at that point. And as you pointed out earlier, look, the American public, including Hersey, they were exhausted. The world population was exhausted. I mean, they yes. were being encouraged to look forward instead of backwards right away. You know, the bandwidth for people to really comprehend one more outsized atrocity story. I mean, it was a pretty thin bandwidth. People had mm. couldn't take any more. So, you know, at first... Even Hersey isn't isn't figuring out how he can get in right away. But then he and his editor of the New Yorker, because he eventually you know started writing for them, his editor William Sean are having lunch one day, right. and Hersey's planning to go back into to the Asian theater. He's going to go and do some reporting from China, and they review the coverage of Hiroshima up to that point, and they realize that it's been. Again, as we said earlier, the most covered story, but the most covered up also. They realized that there's been no reporting on the human toll on the ground. There's no human story there at all. It it was all about what had happened to buildings, as Hersey later put it. He wanted to find out what happened to humans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he... He's from a big war correspondent community at that point, and and he and William Sean, you know, had you know William Sean had also dispatched reporters for the New Yorker all around the world throughout the war. They would have known how completely under control the Japanese and the Allied press were by that point. Again, this wow. is winter of 1945-1946, and. So they began to try to figure out how Hersey would would get in, um, and you know the, the the restrictions on reporters were were completely completely stringent, and you know Hersey um, is is able to do it. So there's some stuff I'm going to leave out because I I truly want the readers to, and this is going to sound strange. I truly want the readers to be hit with the words in the story the way I was. So so I'm going to skip over some things. But if you could give us a sense of so Hersey, I know he goes to China, then he finally does make it into uh, Japan to Tokyo. He's there for a limited time. But if you could give us an idea of what he finds in Hiroshima, some of the people that he talks to, and some of the uh, the stories that he is going to bring back. Because like you were saying, I've had enough of the destroyed buildings and all that kind of stuff. How did it affect the people there on that morning that the bomb goes off? That's the story that he eventually decides that he wants to tell. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's no small feat that he was able to get into the country and, right. and get to Hiroshima to report that story at all. Because, <laughs> yes. I mean, this, again, the they were really restricted topics. Several reporters had gotten into Hiroshima in the earliest um, part of the war, in the earliest days of the occupation, and and had printed embarrassing stories to the U.S. military about, mm-hmm. again, the sinister, what they called Disease X that was ravaging blast survivors. And after that point, you know, reporters were immediately, I mean, immediately restricted. And it was amazing. You know, it was chaotic in the early days of the occupation, as you can imagine. But I mean, the MacArthur team, they got, they got it together fast. And, you know, they really quickly enacted a Japanese press code. The Japanese press couldn't even mention Hiroshima in a poem, much less uh, a press report. Allied reporters, uh, I mean, there were so many ways uh, in which they were kept corralled, um, and it, they, mm-hmm. you know, had to apply for permission to travel around the country. Um, the only way you could get around the country it, it was, you know, through jeeps or through 
um, uh, other you know vehicles that had to be issued by by the military uh, and who controlled the gasoline. Guess who? Right. The army. Um, you know, and the the army's press relations off, press relations officers were not at all shy about remember reminding Allied <laughs> journalists. Right. You know, guess what? We control the food too. If you want to eat, you have to play ball. Wow. You know, so if you if you were if you reported on a restricted topic like Hiroshima or Nagasaki, you could have your credentials revoked. You could be kicked out of the country. Your editors at home were um, called by the PROs or press relations officers and told to send replacements. Um, I mean, they they were just under thumb. Wow. You know, Hersey, on the other hand, he 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 sneaks into the country almost as a Trojan horse, and I say that because you know he. Unlike some of the other reporters who had gotten in earlier to Hiroshima, a lot of them had butted heads with MacArthur's forces for a long time. They hated censorship. They hated the press relations officers. Hersey had been a good team player to the U.S. military throughout the war, mm-hmm. and including having written a, a rather glowing book about general a biography about General MacArthur. Um, and it, it, he later, Hersey later wished that he could take it out of print because it was way too sucky uppy to, right. to, to, to MacArthur. Right. But, you know, if you're vying to get into occupied Japan, having written, you know, a suck up book about <laughs> MacArthur's, it's going to help your case, right? Yes. <laughs> In he comes. And, you know, they even give him uh, when I say that, I mean MacArthur's forces. Uh, they give Hersey permission to travel to the Hiroshima prefecture for two weeks, large, probably largely in the belief that by the time Hersey's there, and by now we're in May of 1946, mm-hmm. that first of all, Hiroshima is an old story. Right. Second of all, and, and that the public doesn't care as much. And second of all, you know they've established such control and censorship over over stories about the city that. Um, they they probably feel pretty confident that even if he were going to write something that they would be able to 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 censor it. So he gets permission to go down there. He does um, with the help of a, an English speaking German priest mm-hmm. and an English speaking Japanese pastor who knew each other. He's able to make inroads very quickly because he's only he only has you know fourteen days. Right. He was able to make inroads very quickly with with the blast survivors who have started to return to the city, and he interviews dozens of them. You know, each of them having you know harrowingly unique, but you know equally ghastly stories about their experiences on the day of August 6, nineteen forty five. Bear in mind also that these interviews are taking place in a desolate rubble-filled landscape. I mean, this is, it's its like Hershey had gotten to the city, and we have to remember he's a war correspondent who has seen everything from combat to concentration camps, but nothing had prepared him for Hiroshima's devastation mm-hmm. because it was it was all one bomb. I mean, he just, there, you know, to, to get this level of destruction before the bomb, it would have to be a fleet of, of bombers that would have come over and, and raised the hell out of the city. Right. So here he is interviewing the blast survivors in what's still essentially a mass graveyard and remains today, by the way, a graveyard, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, uh, and, you know, hearing, you know, all of these terrible testimonies about what it had been like to be on the receiving end of nuclear attack by the U S government, um, and U S military and what it had been like to be, you know, a young mother or, you know, a young doctor or a widow with three little children, um, you know, going about your daily business at eight fifteen in the morning when all of a sudden, you know, catastrophe strikes. That, well, I, yeah, because I'm glad you brought that up because if, if you told me I was about to go to a city that night after night after night, 300 bombers flew over and dropped incendiary bombs or, or general explosives, whatever, I would have a decent idea of what to expect. But if I go to a city and it's completely devastated, it's a year later, it still hasn't recovered because there's not enough material uh, to even begin to rebuild. And then you tell me all this was done by one one bomb. How could you not feel that? Pandora's box has just been cracked open just a little bit. Oh yeah, I mean, and he recognized Hersey recognized a mere year later that that bomb that had devastated the city and caused all of this, you know, biblical grade damage right. was a primitive bomb. I mean, it was literally the first bomb that had ever been used, atomic bomb that had ever been used in, in the history of human war- warfare. Right. And I mean, he just it just felt like it portended the end of days. And he, he felt very strongly and very quickly that 
the only chance that civilization was going to have at surviving, having witnessed what you know what he saw in Hiroshima, mm-hmm. was if humans started to see the humanity in each other again. I mean, he had seen the worst of human nature in World War II. He had seen you know what the Japanese had done to the Chinese. Right. He had seen what the Germans had done to everybody, yes. um, and now he you know saw what the Americans did to the Japanese, and he just thought you know. It, this has to stop across the board. We have to be able to see what he said it was the humanity and even our most misled enemies because otherwise we just don't have a chance at survival in the atomic age. Right. I mean, everybody gets to make their own judgment call about something like World War II. But you can you can go from, look, they attacked us, so we're defending ourselves. That's understandable to everybody. But you don't want to get to the point where you're just as bad as the bad guys because nobody, no one wants to think of themselves equivalent to the uh, Japanese Empire or to the Nazis. And here he is looking at this devastation going, if we keep doing this, because we, did, we didn't just do it once, we dropped it on two cities. If we keep doing this, if this is how we solve our problems in the future, are we any better than those that we just defeated? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it qualifies the moral victory. And, you know, the, the mm. allies had, you know, just <laughs> had a tremendous military victor, victory over Hitler, for Christ's sake, and, and right. you know, Japan and Italy. I mean, this was a moment where they could have truly reveled, but this was Hiroshima and Nagasaki were complicating factors. Hiroshima might seem on its face like it was less of a complicated decision because, you know, it was widely billed as having, again, facilitated the end of the, uh, sped the end of the war, Mm -hmm. um, saving, you know, many German, I'm sorry, many Japanese and American lives alike. But at the same time, you know, scratch the surface and you find out, well, actually, you know, Hiroshima had some military value, but, you know, you just nuked a city of 300,000. It was it was 90 percent civilians who died right. in it. So there. OK, that complicates that moral victory right there. Nagasaki, you know, is a totally different thing because, you know, as, as Hersey felt, um, did you really need to drop the second bomb so quickly? Mm-hmm. And, you know, did we did we give Japan sufficient time to surrender before, you know, ending instantly tens of thousands of additional lives? Right. Um, and, and so, again, these are these are very complicating factors when it comes to the U.S. being able to claim an unqualified moral victory at that moment. And Hersey is aware of that when he's doing this reporting. I, I can't overemphasize how controversial it was going to be for readers to be confronted with a humanized portrait of Japanese victims. Um, So, I mean, his, his, his cojones in, in rolling out this reporting, I just, I'm, yeah, still almost speechless that he, he and the New Yorker, um, we're brave enough to do it. Yeah, uh, go in, and I, and I'm just going to mention this real quick. We don't have to go to this yet, but one, you're absolutely right. Getting the story, publishing the story, and kind of, if I can use this phrase, getting away with it was absolutely amazing to me because I was expecting, you know, I, I didn't know this full detail, so I was expecting you to write something like they get the story, they've got it written up, the government slams the brakes, and it never comes out, and it's only come out, you know, like years later. I was truly surprised that they were able to get past all the censors, and, and we can get into some of that, but. If you could, because I again, I don't want to give too much away for the readers. If you could maybe just select one of those six people that Hersey is going to write about and give us an idea of of what their day was like that morning. Obviously, they have no idea what's about to happen. And if you could just maybe share some one of the experiences of those of one of those people. I I will share um, the broad strokes of the experience of mm-hmm. one of Hersey's um Main protagonist, Reverend Kiyoshi Tanamoto, who was a young Japanese pastor, but with the caveat that, you know, some of it's quite graphic. Um, So just so, you know, reader, uh, your listeners are, are, you know, prepared for that. And I'll try to be um, somewhat restrained, but Hersey was not. So if you do read his account, you'll, you'll get the the full details. But Reverend Kiyoshi Tanamoto was a young uh, Protestant minister based in, in Hiroshima. He lived there with his young wife, Chisa, and their then eight month old daughter, Coco. Mm -hmm. Um, And he had, he had studied English at Emory the year before Pearl, uh, finishing the year before Pearl Harbor. And that's how Hersey was able to communicate communicate with him. And he also um, acted as a translator for Hersey. On the day of August, on the morning of August 6th, 1945, 
Reverend Tanamoto, he hadn't eaten anything. You know, the city was already starving, but he was, he got up, he went out of the house. He was helping a neighbor move um, furniture to uh, the outskirts of the city because the city hadn't been bombed yet, mm-hmm. um, unlike, you know, dozens of other Japanese cities which had been bombed or razed. Um, but they, the, the, the residents of Hiroshima had heard had, that there might be something special coming their way, right. that the U.S. military had been saving them as, as, as a target for something rather more grand. And the nervousness was extremely high. Everybody was in overdrive. They were raising houses to create fire lanes to try to contain fire from potential firebombing. So that's mm-hmm. where, where their mind was at. They, there was no way that they could have known what indeed was being planned uh, for them. Um, so when the bomb goes off, Reverend Tanamoto is on a hill a couple of miles outside of the city. And nobody ever reported to Hersey that they remembered hearing a boom. They just remember seeing a blinding flash. And then the thing that's followed afterwards is like an apocalypse of fire and, you know, houses collapsing and uh, projectile objects flying through the air. So he falls to the ground. And when he rises, he looks down the hill and he sees his entire city is in flames. And he's completely confused because where was the fleet of bombs? They hadn't heard anything. There were no air, air, air raid sirens. There was no, there was no warning. There was no, no fleet that had come to, you know, for instance, like the one that had, had eviscerated Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So then he starts running down towards the city and, you know, people are starting to stream out of it. And what he sees is just horrific. I mean, people are, you know, they've had their clothes blown off or burned off their bodies. Their skin is hanging in sheets. I mean, it's like he, he, he said it was like a, seeing a procession of, of mutilated ghosts. He is trying to get into his neighborhood. And you have to remember, like, the idea that you could even detect a neighborhood in the ruins at this point. Mm-hmm. Is, is folly. Everything is the closer you get to the, the city center, which is was the point of detonation, things are just flattened and there are walls of fire consuming the area. But he's he's manically trying to get to his house and to his parish. And you know, at one point he finds you know, uh, cushions and he douses them in, in this uh, water nearby and he covers himself in cushions and charges into the fire to try to find his family. Miraculously, he finds his wife and his young daughter. They were in their house when the bomb went off. It collapsed on top of them. Miraculously, his wife had been able to chisel through the ruins and get the, the baby out. Both of them had survived. The, and they, you know, I, I, I don't even want to describe the scene in the city as they're, they're running through it. And there's one park on the edge of the city where people are flocking to take refuge mm-hmm. there. Um, and he and his... And this, this is, by the way, this is just the beginning of his ordeal. Um, right. and, you know, he deposits his family there, and then he he commits himself to trying to help survivors get to the get to the park. And that's when when things get. I would I would argue that the detonation point was. Uh, the detonation moment was probably it was horrific, but the hours, the minutes and hours, and the the 20, first twenty four hours after the fact were this were just the stuff of apocalyptic nightmares. And um, Hersey recounted his uh, his ordeal in excruciating detail and what he saw, you know, through for the rest of the 24 hours as he tried to rescue people and bring them over into the park, what happened to the people in the park. I mean, they just, they just you know, would die within minutes of, of arriving. I mean, the, the place was just littered with corpses. Um, I said I wouldn't get too graphic, and, and here I have gotten graphic, but um, Reverend Tanamoto, you know, he does later, uh, you know, he survives, obviously. His family does survive. I actually toured Hiroshima with Koko Tanamoto, the, the uh, their, his his infant daughter mm-hmm. then. Uh, she, she was 74 when I walked through the city with her, right. and we re- revisited the park where all of these people had tried to take refuge, and it's just literally one of the most haunted places you've ever seen. Uh, yeah, I, I just have to say real quick, some of the images that really stuck with me is you're right. A lot of people were going to the park and it becomes this makeshift um, place for people to get triage. But again, as soon as they sit down, it doesn't take very long before a lot of them are dying. The vast majority of doctors in the city were dead. The vast majority of nurses uh, in the city were dead. And the hospitals themselves, because I think they were more closer to the center of the city, they've been devastated. And so you have this nightmare, people. But even the people who are trying to help each other, they don't know what they're dealing with. They just think it's a really big bomb that's gone off. 
and nothing that's happening to the people is making sense to those who are trying to take care of them. Just the, the eeriness of that stayed with me. Well, yeah, I mean, the only person in the city at that moment who might have had some idea about what was happening was one surviving doctor who ran downstairs to get some x-ray plates, um, mm-hmm. and he they were already exposed. And so wow. that was the first indication that this was an experimental mega weapon. But, I mean, otherwise, you know, the doctor, you know, the, the few doctors who survived or medics who survived and then others eventually arrived, you know, in, uh, uh, in small groups from other cities to try to help. They had no idea what, as you said, what they were dealing with. They're giving vitamin shots. They're looking at, you know, people are coming in with horrific radiation poisoning. And so they're throwing up, they're losing hair. They thought it was gas because they're still in the mentality of World War World War One. World War mm-hmm. One, they say, was the chemist's war. Right, where you know where, where it's all about gas. World War II was the physicists' war in the way that it ended, but the Japanese didn't realize that yet. They had no idea, and so they have no idea how to treat um, treat the victims who come in. The hospital scenes. Look, doing the research on what the hospitals were like right. was the most harrowing part of all of this research for me. Yeah. Um, two of Hersey's protagonists in his story, Hiroshima, are, are doctors, um, one of whom you know, st- stays in the city, treats people for 72 hours straight. You know, by the third day, you know, most of his patients who he's treated on the first day are dead. Um, the second the second doctor, who's who's pretty gravely injured but probably still could have worked, is a far more cowardly fellow and and flees the city at first opportunity without staying on hand to treat treat survivors. I I have I have to say this real quick, and I don't know you if you thought about this when you were writing, but it's it's easy now for me in 2020 to sit and judge this guy and to get angry at him. Oh, you coward, you should have ran in there and you should have helped people. You've got this knowledge. Why don't you help people? But I mean, that's a very human reaction. There's complete devastation. Obviously, this isn't the normal thing that's going on. And so at first I got angry at him and then I'm like, you know, I'm sure a decent percentage of people would have run away as well because I mean, it's just so overwhelming. What difference are you going to make? I, I don't even know if that's fair, but I, I think I understood his, for lack of a better word, either self-preservation or cowardice. You know, I think that's I think that's fair, and I think it's really humane of you to take that point of view. I mean, I, I was, you know, in, in many ways, I feel like I took my cues from Hersey's tone towards him mm-hmm. in terms of how I felt, which was, which was, you know, and also, which was, um, less than impressed um, on my part. Um, <laughs> right. but, you know, but I, you know, I think a lot of that also has to do with, you know, when you, he, he was really measured up as a character against, you know, Reverend Tanamoto, uh, you know, yes. who, you know, was literally ferrying, you know, people, you know, across, you know, a burning river, mm-hmm. um, you know, for hours and hours. I mean, the, the heroics were so extreme, yes. um, from the people who did ex- exhibit heroism, but you're absolutely right. Also. I mean, I, I don't think, look, it's just the trauma of reading Hersey's book is so intense. I can't even imagine what the, what the traumatic shock must've been like to be a human being under those circumstances. So, you know, you, I, I, I concede that you're right. And you know, who, who are we to judge? You know, this, this guy, uh, you know, this other doctor who, who took the opportunity to leave hell. Let's just go ahead and jump into this. But again, I don't, um, I'll let you decide how far we go because I want to leave so much for the people. When Hersey's writing this, he's not giving facts, figures, this is many buildings blown up. It had a, it had a devastation or it had explosive, the strong, whatever that's been done before. In fact, like you said, that's been done ad nauseum. He is literally writing this with a little bit of narrative because he wants to hook the people and he wants them to, you know, like, like you said earlier, this could be Houston, this could be uh, Akron, Ohio. Um, he is putting them in this situation if, if they can actually get through reading this uh, this article that he writes in this like 30,000 words or whatever. And so he is not tricking the reader, but he's doing everything he can to say, yes, this is horrible, but it's very important for you to read and understand what I'm putting in front of you and what I have seen with my own eyes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and isn't it a miracle that that he did get people to read it. Cause think about how much incentive Americans had to not read that story. Absolutely. And we can get, we can get, we, we can get more to how it was rolled out and received later. But I will say that, you know, he, look, Americans hated the Japanese. They were still furious yes. about Pearl Harbor. They were furious about Japanese atrocities in, in, in the Philippines and throughout the Pacific in China. And, uh, you know, POW stories by the time, you know, Hersey, 
was writing this, you know, had the POWs had returned to the States and, you know, mm-hmm. how they were treated was, was horrific also. And so, I mean, the Americans had, from a certain point of view, probably had very little incentive, again, to read this narrative right. that humanizes, uh, you know, the Japanese uh, their, their former Japanese enemies, who, by mm-hmm. the way, you know, are being now groomed to be allies in the Cold War, but that's another right. story. Right. Um, you know, and so how Hersey does do it is he, he realizes that he has to make this story read like a novel. And what's more, it has to be a novel you cannot put down. It has mm-hmm. to be a propulsive narrative. So he, it, when he interviewed all the blast survivors on the ground, he picked six people, including Reverend Hanamoto and the doctor who we just discussed, right. um, whose whose stories were just really unforgettable. And they all, um, all of their paths had sort of overlapped in, you know, before the bombing, during the bombing, and then after the bombing. And so he was mm-hmm. able to create this, this story that you really, I, to this day, you, you, when, when you pick it up, you don't put it down until you're done. Right. Um, and then you, you know, you feel like you've been through hell after you've read it, but you, you're, 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 you can't not read it. And that was the experience when it was released for millions of Americans and people around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, again, it was just a staggering achievement that, you know, people, even people who hadn't read it were talking about it and knew, knew about Hersey's story because it was that, um, again, unput downable. Right. Yeah, and like we said, the New Yorker and her, and uh, Hersey gets gets away gets away with this, if you will. Um, but again, I'm going to leave that for the readers for people to pick up their pick up a copy of your book. So so he's got he, he's he's interviewed his people. He's got his notes. I believe he wrote in shorthand, and I I'm, I imagine he's got a lot of notes and a lot of things burned in his memory. But he gets back to New York and. He starts writing this up, but he can't just take his time because the anniversary is coming up. And I imagine the uh, the uh, editors want to be able to put this out in a timely way. So it's crunch time. Even though he's been through hell and back viewing this, it's crunch time for Hersey because he's got to get this written down on paper. Oh yeah, and you know, and as you as you say, he's writing it in New York, and that was extremely clever of him, right? Because if he if he had written everything, uh, you know, on the ground in Japan, that uh, you know, aug- you know, augments his chances of. Um, being censored by MacArthur, you know, another reporter who had gone into Nagasaki and tried to make a similar report. His report had been confiscated and quote unquote lost. You know, yet right. another reporter had had, um, you know, a film that he had taken in Hiroshima go mysteriously missing. Um, you know, so, you know, to that end, William Sean, who was Hersey's um, editor at The New Yorker, r- reminded him via um, a wire, via a telegram to from New York to Japan while Hersey was still over there. We think it best that you write it back in the States. So, you know, Hersey does. He comes back and he's, you know, he's writing like hell and he's not just recounting um He's not just recounting the testimonies of, of these six people. He's also really laying down medical facts about what happened to them. Mm. Um, he's laying down, you know, the the broad strokes of what these bombs do to the human body. You know, the the symptoms, the ghastly symptoms of radiation poisoning, um, and he's doing it in a way that exposes again. He's doing it in a way that exposes how much has been concealed from the American public about uh, these these weapons right. that you know had been created in secret and detonated in their name. And after Hersey's report comes out, because it's so steeped in, in, in this this previously suppressed information, it's you the the government and the military are never ever going to really be able to portray atomic weapons as conventional mega weapons. Absolutely. And, and that's the, the whole point of this. The genie is out of the bottle, so to speak. And you can't just say this is a really big conventional bomb because now we know better which one hopefully won't be used again because we're all scared out of our pants. And two, you've only got to <laughs> please uh, pray to God that it's never used in America because it's not just the blast. It, it's what happens after the blast that people now are aware of. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And, the, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, what's on everybody's mind by 1946 is, you know, the U.S. has the nuclear monopoly, yes. you know, and has had since 1945, but they don't know how much longer they are going to have it. And General mm-hmm. Groves, General Leslie Groves, head of the Manhattan Project, predicted, you know, around, around that time or, you know, in the previous year that it would take the Soviets mm-hmm. 
five to 20 years. Well, guess what? It's 1949 when they get there. So it's only four years. So, I mean, so for Americans to be equipped with the facts and for a global Mm -hmm. audience to be equipped with the facts of, you know, this is what nuclear warfare does. This is what's at stake if we launch another nuclear attack. This is what's at stake if somebody else attaches us. We had better get a grip on, you know, on our nukes, on our nuclear policy, on our nuclear diplomacy. Um, and 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 start dealing with this fast. Absolutely, and we need also need to work on diplomacy in general because when diplomacy breaks down, that's when wars come. And now we have the ability to wipe out, you know, entire continents. So you've already touched you touched on it a couple of minutes ago. But if you could give us another, and what I want to do for the reader is I want to save the point where he is writing this and the publishers get it and all the things they have to go through to make sure this actually comes out because that's an incredible story in itself for the New Yorker, for, for the publisher, for the editor. And I, and I really did enjoy that, but this, this is, if, and this is a really bad, whatever analogy, but this article it's in itself is a bomb that is dropped on the world. And like you said, the government, the American government can no longer deny what the bomb is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I won't ruin it for your readers either, but there mm-hmm. is a moment, as you know, from having read the book in which, you know, Hersey and his editors, they prepared this thing where, where they, the article is endangered because of, um, uh, potential the the government the government is put in the position where they where they are able to shut this down and right. some and mirac- miraculously the, Hersey and his team still still get the report through. Wow. Um, I, I won't go into the details of that, right. but the, the the fact is is that the people who who did greenlight it within the government and the War Department ultimately um, I don't think that they really realized the, the import of Hersey's reporting and the impact of it, namely, you know, again, that I, you know, then they from their point of view to a certain extent, again, Hiroshima had happened a year before so many stories had taken place since then the world had mm-hmm. moved on. Um, I don't think, you know, that the, the, the idea that a story could capture the, you know, the attention of millions of people, including leaders around the world, they didn't right. anticipate that. Well, guess what? That's what happened. So when the story comes out, it's a blockbuster success, mega success. I mean, the art, the, the, the magazine sells out right away. You have to get right. black, black market copies of it. Um, <laughs> You know, luckily it goes into um, book form right away also. And, you know, that mm-hmm. that was already in play before the article came out. Um, you know, millions of copies are being produced around the world. Um, right. and, and and so it's it's it has achieved Hersey has achieved his his goal of making it unput downable. Um, right. And it is embarrassing for the U.S. government because, you know, of you know, what it reveals about, about the bombs. And it really, it, it, what one reader wrote into the New Yorker that it took the quote unquote 4th of July attitude out of the Americans, um, feelings about Hiroshima. Um, not necessarily because all of them were feeling bad about, you know, the Japanese survivors, but because they had a new solemnity about what Hiroshima portended for them Mm -hmm. and what it portended for, for human civilization. So many of them at that moment began living uh, in the atomic age, they'd been living in it already in reality for a year, but emotionally and intellectually, they began to live in the the atomic age when Hersey's article came out. Right now, now no one can say they didn't know. So obviously, we need to do better when it comes to dealing with other nations, with with diplomacy and treating other nations with respect. Or because it's only a matter of time before other countries, like you said, are, are going to get the ability to wipe us out. And when I read your epilogue. I, I completely agree with what you just said a second ago. It was timing. It was the way he, he wrote it. It was the way the New Yorker brilliantly put it out. And so a lot of different factors came together. And the Americans needed this wake-up call because they if, if they don't know it, all the details of this bomb, they're probably going to be okay with the government and use it in the future. But now the government knows that the people know, and that's because of Hersey. So, uh, Leslie, I just want to thank you for this book. This was an eye-opener for me. After I got over my nightmares, it was an eye-opener for me, and I just enjoyed the experience sitting on my porch 
going through this for the good and the bad. And like you said, we saw heroes, we saw cowards, but at the end of the day, it was a story that had to get out. Well, I'm thank you so much for for reading it, and I'm so glad that it um, made such an impression on you. And I really hope that your that your readers like it too. It's um, the great professional love of my life. I'm already <laughs> afraid that I'm never going to have another project that I that I am as passionate about as I was about right. this one. No, I understand. It, it's best to have one at all as opposed to not. So uh, no, uh, you should be very proud because <laughs> again, absolutely amazing. So the book is Fallout: The Hiroshima Cover Up and the Reporter Who Revealed It to the World. Leslie M. M. Bloom, thank you very much for your time. And again, thank you very much for this book. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Ray. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.